I think you guys have seen this 15 times now. Like, and you're like, oh, I get it now. It's amazing. All right. So, oh, what's up? You guys good today? You should be good today. Hey, I am great today, and uh, there are several reasons for that, but I'm going to give you two really quick. First of all, um, the church uh, at large is a multi-generational church, right? And, and we love that fact. And to celebrate that, a couple of things I want you to know about. First of all, today, right after the service, after you go pick up your wee adorable ones in the children's ministry, uh, we're going to be having some baptisms today. We're going to be baptizing some of our kids. Very excited about that again because the church is multi-generational. We've had some baptisms actually over the last couple of weeks uh, down at the river. People have just come and said, uh, can you baptize me today? There's a river. All right. So, um, and so we've done that. Very cool. And then we're going to have some this morning as well. So after the service in the commons, we're going to be baptizing some kids. And so that's very exciting. That's number one about being multi-generational. The second thing is next weekend, uh, we will be flying in. Actually, I think on Friday morning or Friday afternoon, we'll be flying in. A man, his name is Kyle. And uh, this is a young man that we have been interacting with and looking at uh, and and having some dialogue as far as our future uh, student ministries pastor position. And uh, after a lot of different conversations, we said, you know, the next step is really to bring him out here. And so uh, he's going to be here uh, Friday through, I think, the following Tuesday. What that means for us as a church is that on Sunday morning, uh, I'll do a little Q&A with him up here, uh, and then Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. So your bulletin, I think it says May 31st. It actually should be Uh, this coming Sunday, a week from today, not two weeks from today, Uh, but at two o'clock down at the hub, you'll be able to interact with them, ask many questions you want, that kind of thing. Uh, You could also grab them in the commons after church on Sunday and ask them things there. So again, it's just a a real detailed opportunity to uh, interact with this young man. His wife, uh, she is, uh, let's see, eight months pregnant. And so the doc said she can't fly. And so it's only going to be Kyle. Uh, but I don't know. We might just Skype his wife in because we can. Um, so we can see what's going on with that too. So anyway, we want you guys to know about that. Next Sunday, he will be here. Next Sunday at 2 o'clock at the Hub. You can interact with him, ask him questions, that kind of thing. We'd love to be a part of that. Uh, and then he's going to be in all kinds of other meetings during that time as well. And so hopefully it'll be a good, good uh, opportunity to get to know him, him to get to know us. And we just invite you to pray with us in that. Because again, we know that whomever God has for us for this position, it's important. We, we see it as mission critical important in uh, today's day and age where we know it's really important for the local church to equip and develop uh, the young people of the church to continue the legacy of Christ Church. That's our heart. And so we ask you to be praying with us as we do this. So I'm going to go ahead and pray right now for our time this morning, and uh, we're going to get underway from there. Jesus, again, as always, we thank you for our opportunity to be together today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to have it right on our lives. Because that's really what it's about. I, I, I don't want us to be people that are satisfied with just merely being scholars or having the right Christian answer and being able to pass the quiz. I I pray that we are people who love your word, who delight in your person, who long for you to write on us in such a way that it plays out in our lives, that that would be our conviction uh, in all things, both the easy things and in the difficult things. And certainly as we look at our passage this morning, it will call us to the difficult. And I pray that uh, what our disposition is by way of you, Holy Spirit, is that we will long to see you do the difficult through us for your glory. 
And so I pray that your word would truly write profoundly on us today. And so open our heart and mind, open our lives, do some surgery, bring out that scalpel of grace and cut us open, fix what needs repair, seal us up in you. We ask these things in your good name. Amen. All right, so a phrase, a phrase that uh, we all hear probably quite a bit just in our daily lives, watching television, interacting with people. Very simple phrase. It's the phrase, I believe in. And then you have a blank, right? Any amount of time in American culture, and you're going to hear all sorts of different ways that that blank is filled in, right? So for us as Christians, we'll say, I believe in the Bible, or I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus. I believe in the gospel, you're going to have other people that have very different beliefs. They're going to say, I believe in aliens, and I believe in UFOs, and I believe in reincarnation. I believe in karma. You're going to have some like in Nacho Libre. I don't believe in God. I believe in science, right? So I believe in science. I believe in climate change. I believe in capitalism. I believe in socialism. I believe in libertarianism. I believe in all kinds of things. It's going to be across the board. I believe in climate change. I don't believe in climate change. Right? So everybody has what they consider to be beliefs. And what I've come to discover over the course of time is, as you listen to that, is that I think there's two different layers to what people believe. I think there's a layer that's a belief of opinion, and then there's a belief of conviction. And sometimes when people talk about, I believe this, and I believe that, and I don't believe in this, and I do believe, you know, all these kinds of beliefs that we have, I find a lot of times that we use those more as opinions than convictions because they define us in very convenient ways. But see, the real test of a, of a belief that is a conviction is when your belief imposes on your conveniences and you follow through with your belief anyway. See, that's the real test of a belief. In fact, uh, just this week, uh, my son for the summer has to read uh, Walden by Thoreau. And, and you're like, oh, poor boy. Um, and actually, one of my favorite books. And so I grabbed my copy that I had read before my son was even born. And I, I remember when I read it for the first time, I read it a bit like the way I, I would do a Smash Bible. So there's a lot of underlining and highlighting and notes and that kind of thing because I found it to be very profound. And, and so I, I was flipping through it just yesterday, going through some of those old highlights, just seeing what was there. And, and I found that Thoreau spoke to this exact same thing. He didn't put it in terms of belief of conviction versus belief of convenience, but he says, you know, there's this thing that has happened and why is it happening? He, he's sort of a melancholy guy and complains a lot, so I understand, kind of my kind of guy. Um, and, and this is what he says. He says, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. And, and what he means by this, he doesn't mean teachers of philosophy. He means those who profess certain philosophies. They profess beliefs. They profess values convictions, virtues, whatever. They profess certain things, but they're, they're not really a true philosopher. He says the difference is that it was once admirable to profess because it was once admirable to live what you profess. He says that was once the case. 
He says, to be a philosopher is not merely to have subtle thoughts, but it is to so love wisdom as to live according to its dictates. To take the problems of life and not only treat them theoretically, but also to approach them practically. And, and see, I, I, I think this has tremendous value for us this morning because as we continue in our study of Peter, um, he's going to put before us, remind us of things that we as professing Christians believe. We will say, yes, this is among our code. These are our convictions. This is what we hold to. This is our orthodoxy. This is our orthopraxy flowing from that orthodoxy. We're going to believe it, but the test of our belief is not that we all reinforce it verbally among ourselves on Sunday. The real test is if we will let these things inconvenience us to such an extent that we do them when they're difficult. Because that, like I said at the beginning, is the real test. Not that we say, I concur, but rather I conform. There's a big difference between I concur and I conform. Between what I say and what I do. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please open up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Now, as you're on your way there, I want to I set this up really quick uh, because I think it's going to kind of help a little bit how Peter's approaching this, this first initial verse. Um, now, Peter is a good Jewish boy. He's a good Jewish boy, though, writing to a predominantly Gentile crowd. Right? They've converted to Jesus. He quotes a lot of Old Testament to these guys, so he's really schooling them in the Old Testament. But they come from a Greek and Roman background. And Peter wants to get to the core of what makes a person tick. And so he's going to start with what they know, but then he's incorporating it into a deeper idea. So let me give you a sense of kind of Greek culture and how that translates into the Roman world in which they live in. Um, what people believed is that the core of a person was comprised of three parts. All right? So there was the mind, there was the will, and there was the emotions. And so in Greek thought, they would look at that and say, you know what, it doesn't really matter what you say. People say things, but don't follow through. So your real internal compass is predicated on those three things. And so what your mind knows, what your emotions feel, what your will is, that's who you really are. So it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. And you're going to do in life, you're going to have your doing flow out of that combination of those three things. Now, depending on the culture, mind, will, and emotion are put into different arrangements, right? So one informs the next, which informs the next. In fact, uh, in the next slide, you, you see some of those configurations. For example, on that first one, mind, then emotion, then will, that might have, might have been a little bit more the actual Greek culture. They were philosophers, right? And they said, we need to know what is true. And then that filtered into shaping your emotions, and then you set your will in that direction. The, the Romans, they were a little bit more um, uh, kind of the will-based. They wanted glory, eternal glory. And so their will was set first, and then from that into their emotions and eventually their mind. In our culture, we're a very feeling culture. We used to say 150 years ago, I think, I think, I think. Now we say a lot, I feel, I feel, I feel. Right? So we're very emotion-driven. So these come in different uh, amalgamations or, or, or different priorities of order, but it's still all the same. And Peter knows this. Peter knows that what we need to be really dealing with in our person is all three areas, right? All need to be shaped 
by the gospel. But for Peter, it goes deeper because, again, like I said, he's a good Jewish boy. And in Hebrew culture, they didn't break it down into mind, will, and emotions. He's just translating to the culture he's sharing with. To the Hebrew mind, the issue was the heart. The heart kind of bound all of these. The heart was the seat of your real person. This is why when you read the Old Testament, they'll say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It'll talk about, guard your heart from the heart flows, the things of life. There's always this, uh, inform the heart, protect the heart, be wise about the heart, don't corrupt the heart. Why? Because, again, they knew that the heart is the real you. And so, again, it's not what you say that's going to drive how you act. It's what you believe in your core, your compass, the seat of your person, right? And and I keep saying this because I want us to understand what Peter then says in verse 8 is speaking to that. He's speaking to that core of the heart that sort of has incited the mind, the will, and the emotions, and he's going to give us a series of commands that are connected to those three things. And so I start there in verse 8, having front-loaded that, so you kind of understand where he's coming from and probably from that, where he is going. And so he says, after having just laughed off about husbands and wives and slaves and culture and government, he says in verse 8, finally, Finally, we're like, really? We're at the end? No, but he just throws it in there. All right, finally, all of you, doesn't matter if you're a husband or a wife or a servant or a governor or whatever, it doesn't matter. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, when you read that, it just seems like five commands, so to speak, or five kind of identifiers, and, and, and yet, if you look closely at it, you go, but some of those seem like they're similar. This is by design for Peter. In fact, so you can understand how this would have been read by the original audience, I want to bring up this next slide. This is a good way to understand how this broke down. All right? So the first one and the last one speak to your mind. The next two are speaking to your emotions, and the center one is about your will. So he's speaking to a Greek-infused culture and saying, really, when you look at these commands, they all inform one another. They're all a part of what it means to have a heart that is set on living out the values and virtues of the gospel. This is how we display ourselves as changed people. And I want to tell you right now, this is where I go back to beliefs that are opinions versus beliefs that are convictions. This list right here, as I read it and I process it, and I go over and over and over, uh, I I realize... um, this is not easy to do. It's easy to say. It's easy for us to sing songs about it. It's easy for us to give the right answer in Bible study about it. It's easy for us to say, this, these are the values of a Christian. But when it meets the daily affairs and grind and problems and hurts of life, this becomes very difficult. Because it's not just, hey, go do something. There's more to it, right? I mean, just... Oh, look at the passage here again and just slow it down, right? The first and the last part, right? Have unity of mind and have a humble mind, right? If you're really going to have unity with fellow Christians in your thinking, you instantly have to be humble in mind. It's not about you exerting your will or exerting your force. It takes on this whole different tone of how do I serve in a mental perspective, In other words, you have to be lowly-minded. 
right? You have to go, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, to be like-minded, I have to be lowly-minded. It's required of me. It's, it's servanthood. And so I, I need to start asking God, retool my mind. And then you think about the emotions, right? To be sympathetic means you need to be tender-hearted, right? And, and I love it. The, here's what the Bible never uses. It never uses the word empathy. It, it only uses the word sympathy. And you go, well, aren't those kind of synonyms? No, uh, they're not. And here's the difference. Empathy means to be in feeling. And so what it requires is you to be able to project yourself on another person and, and say, well, well, how would I feel if I were them? The problem with that is it roots it in you. How would I feel if I were them? Right now it's about your state of emotions more than theirs, right? Sympathy, the original word sympathy means with feeling, right? I am alongside you in your feeling. And you go, well, I, I don't really feel for people. Yeah, that's the problem. Right? I mean, this is part of the problem. This is why he says, you have to be tender-hearted. You have to start asking God, I don't feel for people, so help me feel for people. Help me to feel with them. You go, well, how do I start to feel with them? Well, you have to be lowly-minded. Right? See how they intersect? Right? If you're really going to connect with people, there has to be this passion, desire, want to not just let it be a written belief that's an opinion, but a deep conviction. And that means we have to start going to God saying, God, grab the scalpel. Grab the scalpel, start cutting me open, start doing the work. Help me to feel with people. Help me to be more lowly-minded so that I might be like-minded. Help me to be tender-hearted when sometimes I'm way too tough where I'm like, sorry, bro, get over it, camper, right? Like, like, there may be a time and a place to say that, but that person should know, wow, you're saying it out of love, not out of, I just know more than you, right? So all of that is in there, and it all comes to that center head of brotherly love. And, and here's the thing about this. Uh, brotherly love, he's not dealing with your um, emotion of love. This is your will. Right? Mind, will, or mind, emotion leads to your will in this. And he's saying, you need to make the conscious decision of your motivations, of your will, of your commitment to love the people around you. And you know what? That's really easy when they're lovable. Right? Like, man, I love everybody that's lovely. Right? But welcome to the church. We're not everybody is lovely, at least according to maybe our own personal standard. Now, sometimes we want to cheat this. We want to say, well, um, I love them. I don't like them very much. Yeah, that's stupid, all right? And, I mean, just think about it, right? That's a, that's, you have to then go, okay, I, I love them, but I don't like them. If you stop right there, then, then the sin isn't how unlovely they are. It's our unwillingness to love through the difficulty, right? Because we're just called to love the brotherhood. It doesn't say love the lovely brotherhood. Love the easy to get along with brotherhood. If you get along with somebody, if you love the lovely, Jesus says even sinners do that. Big deal, right? This is why he says, you're so different though, right? He says, you're so different. I've changed your heart. I've changed the trajectory of your life. I've changed your eternity. I've changed everything about you. I've given you a new way to see the world. So do something crazy. Actually love the difficult. 
Love the painful. Love those who are your enemies, even. He says, oh, that is, that is hard. But see, Peter, reiterating Jesus, is taking us to where we need to be and where we need to go in this. And part of this is because, again, Peter walked with Jesus for three years. He heard a lot of messages, as did the other disciples. And Jesus spoke to loving brothers in pretty bold ways. I mean, Jesus was unapologetic about what it meant. In fact, Jesus would go so far as to say, here's the real test. You say you love me, but if you love me, you're going to love the brethren. And if you don't love the brethren, we have questions about if you love me. In fact, John, one of the disciples with Peter who heard Jesus speak on this, wrote about this in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he uh, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now again, I'm going to go back to love here isn't as much about an emotion. That's about your empathy and your tenderheartedness in the First Peter passage. So love here is about making a conscious decision of commitment. Saying, I'm, I'm going to love the unlovely. I'm going to love the difficult. I'm going to love the one that creates some pain for me at times. I'm going to love the one that I, I kind of look at and go, man, this is real labor and work. See, that again goes back to a belief of conviction versus a belief of opinion. What did I say? A belief of conviction is one that we obey when it imposes on our comfort or ease. And I find among us as Christians, sometimes there are a few people that we find difficult to love. And it's going to impose on us. We can do one of two things. We can say, if I just avoid them, that's how I love them. I turn my back and don't talk to them, and I call it love, all right? doesn't really communicate love, but that's how we can do it. The other is, I'm going to go a different route, and I'm going to press in because it's a matter of will, and I'm going to show them, display to them, a love of will. And you go, well, how do you do this? Well, in Philippians... Chapter 2, Paul is writing to this concept, and I, I find this one helpful in my life all of the time. By the way, too, I, I don't typically share this, just so you know. Um, you'll notice, especially like in this series in First Peter, I'm always like grabbing cross-references all over the place, and for those who follow with me, God bless you. Um, but I put a lot of cross-references in because I want you to understand that the Bible is its own best commentary. The Bible speaks to itself better than anything I can say about it. And so we go to a lot of places for that purpose. And so just FYI, you punched the ticket today by learning that. That's perfect. All right. So in Philippians chapter 2, he's talking about, again, what he hopes for Christians and Christian unity. So he says, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love— it's very similar concepts to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He says, being in full accord and of one mind. And then this is where he says that this is how we show brotherly love. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
just let that sink in. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, this is a bold thing. And, and as Christians are going to say, I believe that. And I go back to, do we believe it as an opinion? Or do we believe it as a conviction? Because if we're going to believe it as a conviction, then it requires us to look at some of the people that we don't connect with so well or don't love so much, and we say, now I need to consider them as being more significant than, than myself. And God, help me to do that. Help me to do that. I, I will confess that is not an easy thing for me. It just isn't. Sometimes it comes very easy because, you know, it's just like, whatever, I just kind of, there's a thing in me that just kind of, oh, okay, I, I get it. They're upset, whatever, I'm fine. But other times there are people where I'm like, man, I just try to steer clear of that person. That person drives me crazy. and I don't, I don't even know what to do with them. And, and then I met with this. Well, you need to treat them more significant than yourself. I remember a long, long time ago, uh, there, there was a, a person in my wife's world that was just that difficult type personality. And, and you know, she's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Just, just do what the Bible says and avoid her, I guess, because it doesn't say that, but just take my advice. All right, so, um, as it says in First Fleshalonians, all right, so um, just avoid them and pretend like they're dead. Uh, so, uh, Anyway, she went a different route, and she took Philippians 2, which, by the way, that passage I just quoted is the number one most quoted verse in our home with our children. Um, you know, when they're fighting, or like, oh, Philippians 2, like, yeah, we now treat others better than yourself, blah, 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 right? So, um, right? so it's a great verse for that. And, and so she took that and just started hanging out with the person that was so difficult. In other words, instead of saying, I'll just turn my back and pretend like they don't exist, and because we don't interact, then there's not conflict. She didn't do that. She actually went the opposite direction, pressed in and said, let's get together. Let's start hanging out. Right? And, and, and that's what was needed. It wasn't easy. You know, she would come back from some of those and be like, how did it go? And she'd be like, pray for us. Um, you know, like, like that would be there. But the fruit of that ultimately paid out. There is something about that that God will bless. It's not easy. It requires you to stow your own baggage and to love the brethren with a personal will. And so this is what we do. And we do it not just because practically it's the best route forward. I really believe it's the best route forward. Aside from that, we do it because Jesus requests it of us. I mean, if, if someone you love requests something of you that is a reasonable request, not easy, but reasonable, and, and better than that is even virtuous, you should want to do it. If Ellen comes to me and says, hey, Matt, can I get you to do this for me? And I go, that's a really good thing. In love, I, I, I do that. It may not be an easy thing, but I do it because it's a good thing or a wise thing. Another reason that we should pursue this as Christians is, to be very frank, uh, we can't afford divisions in God's family. We can't afford divisions in God's family. And I think part of the problem is Christians, again, have another belief that we're all family, but it's not a conviction. Christians love to say, Christians are family. But boy, we bounce out of family fast as Christians. Right? We don't always treat one another uh, as family like we should. Now, again, part of that is tough. I, I have three brothers. I know what it's like to treat people like family. But sometimes it's rough and tumble, and then your mom's stepping in. You just need to love your brother. Fine, I'll love my brother. You know, like, some of that is part of the tension of family. But it doesn't mean then you walk away and you stop being family. 
right? So sometimes it just really means we have to have the conviction of treating one another like family. We can't afford to have division in the family. Another reason we want to pursue this brotherly love, these tender hearts, this sympathy, this like-mindedness, this low-mindedness, all of these kinds of things, is because you know what it really models? It models the very grace in which we are all saved by. It models grace. I mean, how could we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and that dirtbag in row two, seed five? You know, like, right? It's not my fault they're derp. You saved them, though. You know, you can't. There's got to be. No, I, I was a wretch saved by grace. I need to exhibit grace even with those that I might see as a wretch in my own life. Not only does it display grace, it displays humility and forgiveness, right? I mean, we would all agree, again, our belief would be uh, we have been forgiven much as individuals, right? We'd say, oh man, I've done a lot of things, I've had a lot of baggage in my life, and God forgave it all by the gospel. And so from that, we should have a tone that says, therefore, when people wrong me, I want to forgive. I'm eager to forgive because I've been forgiven much. Remember in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 18, the story Jesus tells of the two debtors and the king collects his debts. And the one guy owes 10,000 bucks, basically. He says, forgive me, I'm so sorry. And the king forgives him, and then he finds the other guy that owes him 100 bucks. And the debtor was forgiven much, doesn't forgive this little debtor at all. Makes him grovel. And so the king says, whoa, man, I forgive you much, and you won't even forgive this guy a little. That is the parallel when we will not forgive fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When we won't extend the grace that is so richly extended to us. Right? When we won't choose to sacrifice our own ego for the sake of brotherly connection. Because that's what I found in my own life. Oftentimes, I go, I'm not going to reconnect with that person just purely out of my own ego. I'll reconnect when they admit they were stupid. Right? That's all it's going to take. I'll even call them up. Hey, just want to see if you admit you're stupid yet. Nope. You're still stupid. Yeah, like, like, no, that's not what I'm called to. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes have to have the awkward conversation. I had a real important relationship in my life that really kind of came apart in the last couple of years, and now we're weaving it back together kind of slowly and intentionally and those kinds of things. There's nothing easy about it. Sometimes it just means, you know, I'm not going to camp on the little things. I'm not going to try to get them to uh, submit to every one of my points and agree with me where they were wrong and I have to agree with them where I was wrong. I mean, sometimes you kind of just go, you know what, how, how do we start this over? I, 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 this got all tangled up. I don't even know what that means. How do we move forward? How do we pray this one forward? That's oftentimes just what it takes, right? Because, again, we're saying, I'm going to esteem others as more significant than myself. The last reason I think this is so important is because, frankly, uh, the world needs to see something different out of us. I mean, the world knows much of conflict. Conflict comes easy to the human race. We're awesome at conflict. Even when we think we're peaceful, we're not peaceful. We're good at just fighting and arguing and disagreeing and debating and having our own opinions and exerting our own will. We're awesome at doing that. And what the world needs to see is a church of Jesus that is predicated on values and virtues that are very different that are like a family, that are brotherly loving, that are tender-hearted, that are sympathetic, that are like-minded and have a unity of mind and says, you know what, I don't take everything personally. I give my fellow Christians room to be human. 
Because we're all frail and broken and human, and what we need, what we long for in our own lives when we're foolish is somebody to be gracious with us, so how much more should we be gracious to others? See, that's, that's what the world is kind of waiting to see out of, out of the church, even in our own country. I think they're waiting to see Christians who really are uniquely different, that just transcend the stuff of this world. And know that all things work together for good. They just see that. It becomes obvious. Part of that is they see it inside the church. They see it among Christians. They go, wow, you guys don't fight. You get along. You don't hold things against one another. You really love one another. I mean, to see that would be profound. But Peter says also, they should see something from us as we relate to the world around us. And so no sooner does he tell us to... Have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tender hearts and humble minds, mind, will, and emotions, all rooted in that deeper thing of conviction. No sooner does he tell us to do that, he then tells us how to relate to the world around us. He says in verse 9, Do not, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reliant, but reviling. But on the contrary, Bless, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Right? So now he gives us a perspective for the world around us. And he says, here's the deal. When they come against you, when they mock you and they call you bigoted and they don't like what you believe and they say you're archaic and backwards and all these kinds of things, they revile you, what do you do? Bless you. Right? Don't, don't say bless your heart because we all know what that means around here, right? Um, that's code, right? Can't say that, right? But, but matter of fact, the New English Bible actually said, uh, retaliate with blessing. When they curse you and make fun of you and question how intelligent you are and how silly you might be, you bless. Boy, that's a jagged pill to swallow. We don't want to do that. We want to fight, man. Right? We want to just go full-on Canadian ice hockey, gloves hit the ice, fight. I know I do. Like, I'll show you who's stupid. You're stupid. Here's why. You know, like, and I, 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 I put no points on the board at all for Jesus, none, when I fight. I, I put a lot of points up for my ego. Oh, good, good one, good zinger, good zinger, good zinger, good zinger, right? I love zingers but they don't score points for the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't sit there watching my life going, that was a good one, dude, knuckle bump. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He shakes his head and goes, oh, man, I told you to bless. You're just cursing because they curse. You're just mocking because they might mock you. You're making fun of them because they make fun of you. Um, you're being nothing like what I told you to do. So hopefully you are warm and filled inside, Matt, because that was all about you. That was not about me. And I know this is hard, and I'm not saying I'm good at this. Sometimes I'm really bad at this. But nonetheless, it's what we're called to. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Great little section there at the end of chapter 12. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is why I go back to it's about our will. We're not going to feel this. We have to choose this. All right, this is why it's hard. 
He says, if possible, as so much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is our truth. That is our belief, a belief that needs to become our conviction. See, the more we pick fights, the more we just fight. The more we diffuse fights by saying, okay, I'm going to bless, I'm not going to curse, I'm going to give, I'm not going to take, I'm going to love, I'm not going to hate. Like, the more we do that, the more traction we actually will gain. You know, I've said it many times before, the early church saw an entire pagan culture converted. Because this was their model. This was their model. To the the tune of thousands of executions and tens of thousands of imprisonments, this was their model. Right? You look at the church in China or other persecuted areas, this is their model. Then you look at our culture. We've had a fighting model. We've had a take it to the street in a negative way model. We've had a go on to social media and go to war model. And then we can't figure out why at times we're not gaining the traction. There's articles this week about how the church is shrinking, and then there was others that say, no, 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 the evangelical conservative churches aren't shrinking. The other ones are shrinking, but we're growing. And I go back to, but we're not really impacting. We're not impacting, right? Because I think sometimes we're choosing fighting more than a a faith that trusts God by blessing those who curse us and doing good instead of wanting to repay with evil and uh, instead of giving hope and help and encouragement, we just kind of point fingers. And and not all the time and not in every way. I'm not trying to, you know, it sounds like a very big blanket. I'm just kind of bringing us back to there is a prescribed way. And it's not this posture. That's not the posture we're ever encouraged in the scope of the New Testament. And so with this, Peter gives two different types of advice and moving forward. Because he says you were called to this. You were called to bless and not to curse. You were called to be a blessing in the world so that you might obtain a blessing from God. And then he gets real practical. And he quotes Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, which is great. If, any, if I asked you, hey, do you want a long life and see good days? And you said, yes, I do. Here's your advice. Right, how do I have a happy life? Here it comes, all right? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, first of all, let him keep his tongue from evil. Right? The first piece of it, these two components of advice, he says, uh, watch, watch your words. Just watch your words. And this is hard, right? Um, this week, again, because I know my sin is my tongue, I was reading through James chapter 3, starting in verse 5. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire, entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. Man, but who can tame the tongue? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things not ought be so. Uh, there's no question the tongue 
It's just easy to light that thing up, man. And, and so Peter says, all right, if you, if you, if you love God, you're going to love the brothers. And if you really love God, you're going to be a blessing to the world. And the first thing you have to do then is you have to really think through how you use your words, right? How you use your words in social media, how you use your words in emails, how you use your words in conversation, how you use your words when talking about one person to another person, how you use your words, right? The words you ingest, the words you secrete, all of that. He says, watch your words. The second thing he says is let them turn away from evil. If you want a good and happy life, watch your words. And then next, watch your works. Make sure you're not doing things that are evil. And, and we kind of tend to look at evil as purely, um, you know, heinous things or scandalous things. But, but for Peter, he would say, you know what's evil? To not love the brothers. That makes you a liar. You know what's evil? is to not watch your words. You know what's evil? is to not have a tender heart. You know what's evil? is to not really live what you believe. That would be, for Peter, evil. So he says, man, as much as you watch your words, you watch your works because that's where people are, are really paying attention. What we say and what we do, right? This is why the, the first accusations they typically have against Christians in the outside world is what? You're hypocritical and you're judgmental. Your words and your actions. Right? And so we go, okay, I, I want to, to really have a conviction that watches my words and watches my actions. Third, Peter takes us to the place of watching our witness. He says, turn away from evil and do good. And by good, he means let him seek peace and pursue it. That is good, to seek peace and to pursue that peace. And this is vital because, again, we live in a world where peace is difficult. Peace is frail. Most times, peace is maintained at the end of a sword or a barrel. The world doesn't have peace treaties as much as it just has treaty treaties. And even our allies, we spy on them. Why? Because we don't really have peace. We don't trust them. Right? So peace in our world is, is frail and fragile and probably isn't even peace. And so Peter says, ah, but this is what we really do. This is how we're different. We really exhibit a true peace. You think about when Jesus first hit the planet, what did the angels shout? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. This is the mission of Jesus. What does Jesus say to his disciples just before he leaves? My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world understands peace. And this is why Jesus says then in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be sons of God. The, the idea of being a peacemaker is different than keeping the peace. It's creating the peace. So how do we do this? How do we create peace? How do we make the investment? That is the burden that we have. And so this is where we have to start thinking about, man, how do, how do I become that instrument of peace in our city and in King County and in our state and beyond? How do we become instruments of peace? How do we encourage that peace? And that's a hard task. I think it really does begin first with us being truly wed to our convictions. James 3, after he speaks about our words and what we say and how we should be cautious, he says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In some ways, we have to start working to make peace, even in our own little nucleus, 
Right? We work hard to make peace and to let God's word inform us of what is peaceful. Let God's spirit work in us in such a way that we uh, begin to more and more pursue the value and virtue of peace. And we say, God, that's what I want to be about in life. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to go out of my way to try to build bridges and bring things together more than to create a wedge and burn the bridges and cast people apart. Right? That's true wisdom. That's the wisdom that's from above. And what's great is if we do this, um, it doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with us. I'm not trying to maintain that. You may go, I'm a peacemaker, but not everybody agrees with me. That's, that's okay. All right? Proverbs chapter 16 Verse 7, I came across this this week and I loved it. Proverbs 16, 7, it says, When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. See, there is something about when, 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 when you really adopt, you really fight for a life of righteousness where then God's heart is your heart. His priorities become your priorities. And something about that creates a disposition that's attractive to people. For even in this, even your enemies are like, but that person is just really a great person. I don't agree with them, but boy, there's something about them. I've met a handful of people like that in my life where just even their enemies had a certain respect for them. Right? And, and, and so they just became this, this instrument of creating kind of tranquility around them. And that should be the pursuit of all of us. All of us. And, and again, I, I, I find this hard in my own life because sometimes I like to be provocative. Sometimes I like to needle. Sometimes I like to pick and to poke because that's fun. And, and now I'm painfully being challenged, right? To be a true peacemaker, because that is, that is what changes the world according to Jesus, according to Peter. And so he says, seek peace and pursue it. He goes on to say, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is a tough one right there. Right? I mean, it, it, it's very inspiring if you don't read the last part. You're like, oh, that's awesome. So if, 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 I'm, if I'm righteous, God hears my prayers. Should, that should inspire us. Instead, we look at the other half. Oh, man, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Oh, no, I can't do evil. Right? Like, no, we should look at this and go, why would I want to do that anyway? I want, I, I, I want to live righteous in such a way that God hears my prayers. And then in hearing them, he, he even fulfills more of those things to me so that I might be more of what he wants me to be. I mean, that's the, that's the idea. You're gener- it's like a flywheel. You want to get it going more and more and more. God, I'm more righteous, and I'm praying, and you hear those, and you do it more in me, and it just gets stronger and more intense and more focused and more peacemaking and more loving of one another and more tenderhearted and more sympathetic, all those things. So it's just a flywheel. It just spins up with greater momentum. just means that we have to have that heart. Now, here's what I have to break to us is the news. Um, in all sincerity, verses 8 through 12, um, we are not going to be good at this. As human beings, we're not going to be good. If you just took the chunk as it is, we're going to struggle because we already struggle with our own selfishness and our own sinful inclinations and, and, and this is really asking us to be very, very selfless. Very selfless. Looking out for others, seeing them as more significant than yourself, loving your enemies even when they're mean to you, blessing when you're cursed. That, this is hard. 
And here's what I would not advocate among us this morning. I would not advocate you try to white-knuckle this one. You know what white-knuckling is, right? Where you just go, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to love those. I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm loving them. I'm loving them. You know? You might be able to pull that off for a series of weeks or a series of months. You know? But pretty soon, you just you can't keep doing it. It's just one day, you're just going to, right? Because you can't white-knuckle this one. So one of the things I love about the New Testament is that it calls us to very difficult things. But it also calls us to call out to God to work in us to do those difficult things. You catch that? It calls us to call out to God to do these difficult things through our lives. It's not white-knuckling. I'm not asking you to just obey, grin, take it, and bear it. Uh, If anything, what the Bible's going to tell us is, you know what, all the more because this is so hard, you have to really be daily dependent. You have to be daily dependent. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, it talks about this. This is why we don't white-knuckle. Right? This is why we seek something very different. It says, starting in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit and... You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are at odds with one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so Paul kind of sets up this dichotomy. He says, you know what? Your your regular you is going to fight against everything that the spirit wants to do in you, which is why we want to surrender to the spirit more than to our own selves. That's why we don't want to white-knuckle it. Right? Because it's going to be hard to bless those who curse and love those who hate us. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to love the brothers, the difficult ones. Right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to be tenderhearted. Right? So he says, you really want to surrender to the Spirit. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. He has a list of sins. But the ones that are important to our discussion this morning are things like enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. These things are all that latent stuff in us that is waiting to pop out when pushed. Right? When we face difficult times, that's what oozes to the surface. Rarely do I find myself in difficult, painful, fatigued, irritated times, just naturally just feeling love, joy, peace, pop, pop, pop. Right? Like, it doesn't happen. Under pressure, I get frustrated and angry and short and irritable. Why? Because that's the latent stuff always waiting to pop out. That's the default in me waiting to pop out. So it requires of me then something different. And again, it's not the white-knuckling it. It is seeking the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Therefore, he says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is what I'm trying to say. This isn't about us saying, how do I obey all the commands of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, and all the cross-references. What I'm saying is it's a little simpler than that. How do I die daily to myself and let the Spirit live in me? That's really what the pursuit is. So it's not like we have to memorize all the commands and try to figure out how do I press myself through these as much as every day it's like, all right, Holy Spirit, I just want to surrender to you. I want you to do the work in me. I want you to have control. I'm calling out to you so that you can do this in and through me because I know in and of myself I can't do it. That has to be what we seek. In fact, I close with Romans chapter 8. 
this is a good promise for us. This is just a good reminder. I, and again, I'm not saying this is easy. In fact, sometimes I, I think people would be like, can you just give me the bullet points? That would be easier than dying daily and seeking the Spirit. What does that mean? Okay, it just means dying daily and seeking the Spirit. In every language, it's the same. You know, it's, it's a, a moment-by-moment crying out, help me, just slay me and you live in me kind of thing. The good news is that we've been given what we need for it. Romans 8, starting in verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right? The law said, here's 613 things to do, and we tried to white-knuckle it and couldn't do it. Right? We, we can't do law through white-knuckling. So it says, For God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, I highlight this because, again, it's not about give me the bullet points, give me the 613 laws, give me the five things out of verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, and then all the things about handling my culture and blessing those who curse, and give me all that stuff, give me the bullet points, I'll memorize it, and go do those things in line-item fashion. It, it, it's, it's something deeper. It, it, it's inviting the Holy Spirit to work on the seat of your person. It's saying, Holy Spirit, you've given me a new heart. Now help me to live from that heart. Help me to connect with the heart that you've given. Help me to, to live in your power more than in my might. Help me to live by your grace more than by my self-interest. Help me to be selfless. And by being selfless, I am surrendered so that you can be selfless through me. That is the prayer. Uh, it's not, hey, go be certain things. It's no, go dwell so that he in you will do certain things. That's what this is. Again, there is no way I would be able to maintain this or do this. But because of what Jesus has done, through me, he can. Because of what he's done for you, through you, he can. And our call, our heart, our mission is to say, please, every single day, I die to self. Do this through me for your glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that that's exactly what this will be. I pray that we will, we will long to be a people of belief that are convictions, not just beliefs that are opinions, not just beliefs that come and go based on circumstances. That is so easy to do. I pray that we would be different. I pray that we would be dependent. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do it in us instead of us trying to do it apart from, from you or just in your name but without your power. I, I pray that we wouldn't fall victim to a religiosity in this, but rather a life in the Spirit through you. We ask these things.